This is Speaker for the Living, a podcast where we explore human trafficking, forced labor, and all things related. My name is Seth Dare. I am one of the hosts of the podcast. The other host is JJ Janflone. What up? And I'm back from a uh, work trip in Louisiana. And while there, I visited a few plantations. Specifically, I visited uh, Evergreen Plantation and Whitney Plantation. And so that's going to be the topic of today. These were the first plantations that I've ever been to. Have you ever been Mm -hmm. to a plantation, JJ? Well, not a plantation. I've been to a a home that was a stop along the Underground Railroad traditionally. So I think maybe that gets lumped in sometimes with plantations, but I've never been to a historic one. So I guess the answer to that question is no, I haven't. (laughs) Well, Louisiana has a number of former plantations. One of them, Louisiana State Penitentiary, or Angola, is a prison that is a former plantation, which is still kind of creepy. But uh, there are many plantations. They are billed as tourist attractions now. Yeah. People hold events there. You can hold a wedding there. Yeah. So in uh, preparing, we took a look at some of the plantations you can visit. I visited just two of them. I visited a slave-focused plantation and one that was focused more generally on the family in the big house and also had uh, slave cabins and talked a bit about slavery. So I could get a general understanding of what it was like. Mm -hmm. I suppose I could have visited all of them, but that would have taken a long time, but it would have been very interesting. But yeah, so uh, you can have your wedding at a plantation. Well, and famously... And I'll link you guys to the story because some of you, I think, are quite young or maybe are not quite as into people on the Food Network and their lives as I am. But when there was the Paula Deen, or the outcry, rather, against Paula Deen a few years ago about how she basically got um, called out for using racist language. And she said, uh, directly quoting, and this is me directly quoting Paula Deen. These are not my words. This is me quoting Paula Deen talking about how she really wanted to have a plantation-style wedding where she would only hire black men and women to serve the food. And she said, quote, for the idea, the whole entire waiter staff was middle-aged black men and they had on beautiful white jackets and a black bow tie. I mean, it was really impressive. The restaurant represented a certain era in America after the Civil War, during the Civil War, before the Civil War. It was not only black men, it was black women. I would say they were slaves. And how this was sort of her ideal you know, to have a plantation wedding that this was actually a business she and her husband were in, were interested in entering into where they would have literally like sort of, I guess, a slavery reenactment for the sake of people having weddings or other events. Well, aside from finding it kind of uncomfortable to see the tourism focused aspect of plantations, uh, I will say most of them, when I've looked at websites, do mention slavery. And mm-hmm. don't mention it as a positive thing, so so that's good. But still, there's a brochure for Oak Alley Plantation where it says, Most spectacular. San Francisco Plantation says it's the most opulent plantation house in the South and perhaps the entire United States. And then there's uh, Homa's House, which says it's the crown jewel of Louisiana's River Road. They don't mention slavery. I did a search on their site. It's not on their site at, at all. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because very clearly, I think if you're if you're selling this as a traditional plantation, or this is a plantation that's plantation that's been restored to its like original state, 
then you should mention slavery because inherently that's based in. Did these did these places make any reference to like slave quarters? They did. When I visited Evergreen, there was a note written by a child, and he said, Thank you for the tour of Evergreen Plantation. It was nice and quiet. The house was big. The slave cabins and the alley of oaks are cool. I mean, they're a child and all that, but when when your impression of the slave cabins is they're cool, I'm not sure what if the child came away with the right message. Well, I mean, there's a small part of me that says, I'm going to be fair, to be fair, is that when I've traveled and, and other places or, or when I, cause I nanny and deal with a lot of young kids, sometimes, you know, I've heard people say who are trying to do a translation. I, I was talking about history with a bunch of kids in China and they had this, we had this whole debate about Hitler being great, which was a statement they made, not great in the sense of good, but great in the sense of historically impressive. So that might just be a, a younger child, not understanding sort of that distinction and language of, cool being interesting versus cool being something enjoyable. So that, just to play devil's advocate, that might be it. But nevertheless, I have a feeling based on your experience, then no, no, they they probably didn't get an accurate history conversation going through. But in general, I found the tour guides to be knowledgeable about the plantations and to not gloss over slavery and... Evergreen, which is the one not slavery focused, had exhibition sections in the tour house where they were talking about it and not making it look good. And and so I think overall it was pretty fair, at least with these two plantations. Mm-hmm. Although it was interesting at Evergreen where at one point the tour guide asked if I still wanted to hear more history. And she mentioned that Often people are more interested in taking photos than hearing more history. So whatever that means. Yeah. But, you know, having got past some of the the marketing weirdness, these are nice plantations. Like, (laughs) they are pretty. Especially now. I wasn't there 200 years ago or 100 years ago, but the trees are nice. uh, the, The small bridges are nice. The house that each owner lived in was really nice. So there is beauty to be seen in the architecture and the landscaping. Yeah. However, you have to, you can appreciate the beauty and still acknowledge the fact that people died for it. So uh, Whitney Plantation, which is uh, billed as really the only slavery museum in the United States. I don't know if that's 100% factual or not. There are other museums that cover slavery, but it still gets the point across that there's not much dedicated exclusively to slavery in the United States, which is an interesting uh, topic in and of itself. But Whitney was only reopened as this in 2014. So to uh, jump back between these, these are right next to each other. Mm -hmm. There is uh, some family relationship I heard at one point between the two. They have a lot of the same characteristics. So they both have big houses that are right on the river. There's now a levee on the river. I I almost didn't notice the river because of the levee. And so a levee is an embankment. It's uh, building up along the river so that you have more land or other things to prevent water from coming over when water 
is higher. And in relation to New Orleans, that's something that you heard about when uh, Hurricane Katrina was happening. Like, yeah. how, how high were the levees? When does the water overflow? And so both of the houses, when they were initially built, were built on stilts to where the bottom floor was empty. And then they slowly mm-hmm. filled it out and uh, developed it later. But at that point, like in Evergreen, they had portable furniture because at some point that when uh, there was going to be a big storm, they, they're like, oh, we have to be able to move things out because it'll flood. So that's kind of interesting. Uh, both of them had the slave quarters a good distance away from the main house. So they didn't want the slaves to be too close as far as where they lived. Both of them had a kitchen nearby. The uh, oldest external kitchen in Louisiana is on Whitney Plantation. Mm-hmm. And that's where the, the slaves would make the meals for the masters. The uh, slave cabins were all, I guess, duplex. They had a fireplace in each one, uh, not a lot of space. They were supposed to be one family in each one, but how well they stuck to that depended on uh, the season and everything. I heard different stories between Whitney and Evergreen at Whitney, which, again, is more slavery-focused. They're talking about how they would overcrowd those at certain times of year. Mm -hmm. They were uh, planting sugar down here. Now, now sugar slavery in uh, the Caribbean was supposed to be pretty brutal. Like in the Caribbean, they were less likely to want to breed slaves. They were more likely to use them up and replace them. Which is also to maybe, I I think we kind of have to to, to jump in there. Anytime we're talking about historical slavery, particularly transatlantic slavery in the U.S., we're going to be using a lot of really sort of gross terminology because... In the pre-Civil War period, you have legally it stated that people held in slavery are not actually people, and so they're property. And so there's actually a lot of language that was used between both plantation owners, slave catchers, slave sellers, slave owners, and just sort of the general public that referred very much to, to people being held in slavery as if they were livestock. And there's actually been, oh, it, there's a particular book uh, that actually compared where a particular slave owner used the same exact terminology, the same processes that would be used for horse breeding for the sake of breeding future slaves. And generally, the, the, the further down you were in the U.S., so the closer south generally was considered to be the, the worse it was considered to be, to be sold sort of down the river would be down. And there are books back and forth about it. There's a book by Fogel and Engerman that talk about how systematic slave breeding wasn't a major economic concern. However, you do have one, another one um, that's really great called the American Slave Coast that talks about how it was. So I think that this is a thing that historians kind of sit back and forth going, going on. Um, but I, I, it's really important, I think, just to remember that this is an unfortunate reality of how people were discussed so like when Seth talks about breeding like that's not his language that's legitimately sort of the narrative that was created around slaves and I think probably for that also to produce this idea of 
you know, well, no, they're not people, so I don't have to feel guilty about it, if that makes sense. I, and we have a whole podcast about sort of the justifications that slavers and now human traffickers use. But if you want sort of a direct, like, some from, from the mouth of people who went through it, there's a really good book called Slaves Narratives, A Folk History of Slavery in the United States from Interviews with Former Slaves. And that's fantastic because we have so few actual ethnographies of people who lived through slavery. In fact, the particularly in the U.S., there was a big push, I think, to eliminate those voices. So I, it's, it's a really great book if you want to pick up and sort of have a deep understanding of how breeding, quote unquote, um, happened and also just how like sort of day-to-day life was for the people actually on these plantations and under sort of master control. Yeah, and uh, Whitney actually integrates the Writers Project interviews into their exhibition. So like one of the the quotes from somebody named uh, Louisa Everett, which also relates to breeding, quote, well, he told us we must get busy and do it in his presence, and we had to do it. After that, we were considered man and wife. Me and Sam was a healthy pair and had fine big babies. I never had another man forced on me, thank God. Sam was kind to me, and I learned to love him. So yeah. But with talking about slavery, it's that challenge of, like, words matter. Like, enslaved person is a better term than slave. And breeding is offensive. But I also don't want to sanitize it so much because slavery is offensive. And we've done a really good job at sanitizing slavery in the United States. You should be offended by the word breed. And if I use a nice word, it might sound less horrible than it is. Yeah, but it's horrible. So they are said to have had Sundays off to do their own thing, which is good. Slavery varied across plantations, across states. So it's hard to give one narrative that explains what slavery was like for every slave at every time. But uh, both plantations were said to give Sundays off. The slaves were able to have gardens and make some of their own food. The pro of that is they had some autonomy and could supplement their diet. The, The bad part is that's less food that the owner would have to provide. They couldn't leave the plantation in general. Uh Whitney does not have the original slave cabins. They were destroyed at one point. So the ones they had on the grounds were replicas and not in the original positions. Evergreen has the original slave cabins in their original positions, which is one of their claims to fame. As a visitor and somebody who's interested in historical slavery, that was interesting to see both the the location in reference to the house and where they were in relation to each other. There's been a few upgrades like to the roofs mainly in years since so that they'll continue to hold up. Mm -hmm. But uh, they were there. A lot of things on the plantation were made with cypress. Do you know anything about cypress, JJ? I know nothing. I didn't know much about it. Cypress grows in swamps and such, and it's really durable. So I saw it's, a fence a made place, of... Yeah, it's a it, place in Greece? I, probably, maybe. Is it named for the trees? I don't know. But the cypress tree is uh, really strong, really resistant to uh, moisture, and so many things were made of cypress, and uh, multiple things in the houses were made of cypress. 
So the two plantations were part of the uh, German coast where offers were made to bring in Germans to farm the land. As I heard in Evergreen, they overpromised. But uh, once they were there, they were like, okay, what do we do? And in the case of uh, Whitney Plantation, that was the uh, Haydell family, and it was originally called Habitation Haydell. And uh, that started in uh, 1752 with Ambroise Haydell. And their main crop to begin with, uh, once, uh, one, well, once they got past just basic farming, their main plantation crop when they became a plantation was indigo, which is a blue color. We're so used to dyes now that apparently uh-huh. indigo was a big deal back then because it wasn't common to have the color blue. And later they decided to produce sugarcane. As it was explained to me, if Louisiana is a boot, you have the upper part of the boot, which is where they pick cotton, and you have the lower part where there's a lot more moisture in the ground and uh, in the air, and there they produce sugar. And so sugar was a big crop in Louisiana. So I got to see some sugar cane. I actually hadn't seen the plants with my own eyes before. And sugar made them a lot of money. And, and part of what is interesting to me with just sugar in general is how many enslaved people produced something that really isn't necessary to survive. Of course, a lot of slaves also in other places produce tobacco. So as if slavery isn't bad enough, like at least with cotton, they're producing clothing. But just is just something that's there to make something pretty. So they they did indigo and then they did sugarcane. Yeah, th- but something pretty and then something... Sweet. Yeah, so I guess it's still the aesthetics, right? Even if it's... It's still something there just to make life enjoyable, not something that's a necessity. Yeah, and it was really, really profitable. So in 1860, when Marie Ezelie Haydell died, she owned 101 people on the plantation. At that point, the land holdings were valued at 61000 but her slaves were valued at 65000 So when talking about property, we don't always fully grasp that people like it's people and land and that people were a big part of what was taxable the number of people through the three-fifths clause helped define taxes as well as representation so a lot of property and taxation was based on enslaved people yeah oh the government was certainly like and not just in that way complicit but i think it's important to remember that a lot of people made money off of this labor, not just necessarily the the people who owned them directly. Like plenty of of largely non-slave owning companies in the North bought their products or maintained farms in the South for the purpose of having those products. And tax revenue is part of that. So at the plantation, there is a wall of honor where the names of the enslaved are etched as well as uh, a few details about them. There oh, well, that's are nice. At 300 least that there's a remembrance. Yeah, there's 356 people enslaved on the plantation. They kept good records because it was required by Louisiana law. Mm-hmm. There was also the Field of Angels exhibit where they honored the 2,200 slave infants born in St. John the Baptist Parish, where this and, and uh, other plantations were. 
So 2,200 slave infants born in that parish who died prior to their second birthday. Which, like, even for that time period is an extremely high infant mortality rate. So they encouraged us to find somebody with the same birthday. So I found uh, January 23rd, 1850, somebody named Jacob. And no last names because the familial connection isn't permitted, right? It's just first names? In this case, yeah, it generally not last names. Like uh, there's one here, Alexis Mulatto. There's one Esprit or Esprit. Esprit. I think Esprit. Esprit Negro. Clarice Negress. So it's it's sort of the defining term that would be used by the, I guess, owner or I guess legally to define them. Yeah. So the uh, Haydale family sold Whitney after the Civil War to. British Johnson, who named the property after his grandson, Harry Whitney. Mm-hmm. That's when it became Whitney Plantation. Even after the Civil War, in some respects, it looked kind of similar. In that you then had uh, wage workers, including some of the same former slaves working the plantation. For a very low wage, it must be pointed out. It wasn't that suddenly they were getting the, the state sort of, well, this is pre-minimum wage, but that they were no longer getting a living wage. It was often sort of like a pittance to tell to sort of signal like hey like government we're following the rules but conditions really did not change so about 25 percent of them at whitney who had been enslaved stayed and became field workers the field workers most of them lived in the cabins the plantation owners no longer had to provide food medical care and clothing mm-hmm the wage workers had to purchase them from the company store with advances on their wages. So you move then from traditional slavery into now debt bondage. Now, all throughout this period, it's not that the enslaved never had any leverage. Uh, there were people that were mar- maroons who, who left. Maroons were those who escaped from slavery. Mm-hmm. Or people people who were granted their freedom or who bought themselves out or their family members out of Slavery, very rare. I think it's been romanticized a lot in, in literature since then, but could, could could happen. So there were reportedly cases where Maroon would come back just at the right time to, where they had a little bit of leverage and try to you know not be punished and uh, get certain requirements. But the leverage that slaves had was a lot less than the people who had the entire administrative and security state behind them. Oh, yeah. The force of law. And then with the force of law being represented by things like Jim Crow laws, you see, I think, then sort of that continuation of control. Because certainly some of those, like we talk about in our Thomas Jefferson podcast, certainly some of the slaves that worked on that land would have been related to the family that owned them, most likely. So one of the owners of Evergreen decided to uh, go all out and make their uh, plant, their plantation house more Greek. Mm-hmm. And so it does have some Greek influence. But then at the Whitney house, the owner had somebody paint faux marble on their house so that when you would see it from the river, it would look kind of marbly and expensive. They also had their pigeon houses. Pigeon was a delicacy, and they would have those near the houses, which, again, sign of wealth. And I guess... Pigeons are good. I don't know if they taste like chicken or not. I almost had alligator, so I don't know if alligator tastes like chicken. 
But I had crocodile once, and I said it tastes like chicken to the tour guide, and she she wasn't having any of it. So anyway, that was my uh, aside. I just like that. I just I'm just picturing sort of them being like, and these are fancy pigeons for company only. These are slightly smaller pigeons. We eat them on days when we feel fancy, but there's no one around to see. By the way, the blood mm. of innocence stains our land. Ha <laughs> ha. Mint julep. So I focus. I, I focus more on the Whitney Plantation yeah. in terms of the history, but Evergreen, you know, they they went through their different owners. Uh, one of one of the uh, anecdotes given to me is when the one woman took over the plantation. She did so so she could keep her kids from starving. That was just the the one where I kind of bristled inside. I don't want her kids to starve, but the fact is these beautiful houses and the beautiful landscape was on the blood of slaves. This beauty and the furniture replicas in them, which were all very nice, the nice beds, the fairly modern look, the bedpans, all of that, it was built on the backs and with the blood of slaves. And Looking at the slave cabins compared to the big house, I mean, it's a really huge disparity. I expected to be bothered by it, and I was. But there's there's also, when visiting places like this, there's the part where it can be hard to emotionally connect, especially if you're not hearing the stories of the enslaved. Mm-hmm. And that part was helpful with the integration of the writer's project stories and also with a bunch of child replica statues that they had on the plantation. Mm-hmm. But, you know, largely we, we have these details of the owners and very little about the life of the people there, which is also very telling. We did, however, have transactional records. Yep. So it's called inventory at Evergreen. You have the Haydells there too. From the inventory of the late Pierre Beckel. Becknell and his wife, Magdalene Hadel. So we have Charles, 1791, uh, Manding Origin, I think it says, male, black. Next one, Barnana Origin, male, black. Next one, Louisiana Creole, male, uh, Griff, Indian and black. You know, that's when they're acquired, also when they're sold. There was another one, which is again listing inventory. Well, and that's how most sort of people who, who trace their genealogy back two plantations often then have to rely on sort of bills of sale to to do that genealogy to get as close as they possibly can or sort of internal records so you literally have to at a, at a certain point you stop looking on sort of people registered at a census and actually have to turn for people who who are counting as inventory and tax records and that that can be devastating so in another evaluation so we have the a master house in wood on brick pillars, roofed with shingles and measuring 40 feet by 56, worth 2000 A storehouse on brick pillars, roofed with shingles, surrounded with planks and measuring 56 feet by 28, $1,000. Joseph, age 34, Creole, Negro. Cooper, $1,200. Got Phil, an American Negro, excellent sugar worker and Negro of confidence, $1,200. A Negro they could trust. I had it all explained to me, but I couldn't help but feel mixed on it. Yeah, it's a weird... Well, the designations are just, I think... But like in, in some senses, I guess it, it's good that you're uncomfortable. No one should ever be comfortable with people being reduced to this. 
Well, and I had a discussion with a guide, and it's possible that they were treated better here than some plantations, and I'm willing to accept that possibility. But I feel like every probably plantation tour says that. (laughs) I've never been on one, but I feel fairly confident (laughs) in that assertion. But there's still a huge disparity. They're still slaves. They're still controlled. Their movement's controlled. Their pay is usually slim to none. They don't have many rights in society at large. They don't have lots of control about their families. Like slavery, as we've said, is psychologically abusive, regardless of how they were, quote, treated. And yeah, I that, that I think the thing is for me is I don't think you can put a value on being able to actually legally be considered your own person with rights under the law. And so Whitney also had a place where slaves were punished. I'm not sure if it's an old railroad car, but it, uh, I mean, it looks like a little prison. And also, uh, they were said to be vertically integrated enterprises. So they produced the entire product of sugarcane on site. And so the slaves would not just be involved with harvesting, like planting and harvesting, but they would be involved in other parts of the production of sugar. I hadn't really thought about the vertical integration part before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's present. How were how are the other people on the tour with you? Not to, but I'm always kind of curious. You know, or did they take it seriously? Did they? For comparison, I ended up being the only person on the tour at Evergreen, so I couldn't compare anyone else. Oh, okay. <laughs> but at Whitney, it was designed to take seriously, and the tour guide took it very seriously. Okay. I didn't find it. Uh, I didn't find it as bad as like the genocide tours I've done. Mm-hmm. Those felt more harsh because they got more into the, the torture. Yeah. Whereas um, I didn't hear a lot about that. Like it really didn't I, seem that harsh. And I think that's so interesting to me because you can't go to say a camp in a country where genocide occurred that where it's a historical site without them mentioning sort of everything that happened on the camp in sort of very sometimes blunt terms. Right. But I mean, I would say even at the, the national Holocaust museum, it op- opens or at least when I did and closes when I, when I went um, as a student with uh, talking about the death of the children, the children that were killed um, by the Nazis. And so it's interesting to me, though, to places where really like a work camp and a genocide did happen. I mean, not how we would legally define a genocide, but, you know, what many people do consider to be one nevertheless, that maybe like, you know, that portion, though, the, because people were tortured and that's not discussed. People were killed, raped it, and killed and murdered. And Well, when I went to uh, Tulsling, Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and to the Rwanda Genocide Museum, into a concentration camp in Germany, Sachsenhausen. They all had more details on the lives of the people affected at these camps than mm-hmm. on either plantation. And maybe that's just really telling that like, we know when people died because we have to have that record. Yeah. But the amount of erasure 
I mean, even at a plantation that is dedicated to it is pretty significant. And I'm glad they brought in the writer's project and they, br- and they mentioned the infants and they, they brought in the names. But the amount of details they had about the people there was limited. And it was children. Like the writer's project, people were children for the most part uh-huh. and teenagers at most by the time they did that in the 1900s. And so there's there's all these stories that could have been had had it been done earlier. I mean, it's great it happened, but, but it would have yeah. been great if it would have been done earlier so we'd have more stories. I mean, even just like the, the relative who told me that slaves were treated good when I was bringing up slavery by another name, by, by black men. Like, well, what narratives are you going to believe? And if you're not going to take the time to read of slave narratives... From the people it, who were actually there and experienced it and are telling in your own words how it impacted them. And potentially not believing slave narratives and just believing master narratives, especially after it's over, it seems that not all masters lied. Some of them were just really self-deceived. I don't see much of a difference in terms of the action, but willing to grant that some people believe their own crap. Yeah. And I'm not justifying violence. I'm all for nonviolent civil resistance. But I am going to say that if someone says that slavery wasn't that bad, if you do maybe want to spit in their oatmeal, I'm okay with it. If you needed to hear from someone, I, I'm, I, I will not fight you. Or maybe you can punch me in the face. I'm just saying if you needed someone to say it was okay, I am not legal allowed to allow you to do that nor should i really morally but i'm gonna say it's okay go ahead punch him in the face and That's so the whole podcast. and just so telling it's okay to commit assault <sighs> well on that they talked about some of the uh, slave rebellions one of them was at uh destrahan plantation which i didn't go to but uh where that where there were trials there and they mentioned the you know the haiti revolution and it's one of those rough things where when there were revolts, people died. I mean, on all sides, but you had slaves that killed other people. And I don't know, like with American schizophrenia to where, like, we're rebels and we revolted against England and we we overcame and won. People died, of course, but we, you know, people died there. But then with slave revolts, it's like, well, well, well wait a minute, you know, people, they killed people. So maybe we, we should put on the brakes. I mean, which is it? Are we for the rebels going for their freedom or or not? But it's it's a hard thing because when there are revolutions, people die. But there's a, a rich history. There's a lot to be seen, a lot of context to be given. And um, I have more context about what a plantation is like now than I did before. And if you're interested in slavery, I provided the links to Evergreen and Whitney. And Whitney has some educational resources and some videos that you can look at. So you can go deeper on the history than I gave you. I'm not going to claim to do it justice. Just wanted to give more of my impressions about it. And there's other plantations that you could uh, visit. And uh, if you decide to have a wedding at one, well, that's your choice. I wouldn't be too comfortable with that myself. Yeah. I yeah, that it would make me uncomfortable. I think that we like these places should be preserved though. I don't think you should have your wedding there. I don't think you should have a wedding that's, you know, 
plantation themed or anything like that. We have I one of the things I'm linking you to are the people who fight every year. Apparently, it's in exceptionally high demand to have a wedding, uh, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson's plantation. Uh, but nevertheless, like I, I think that like a, a plantation where the the slave housing, maybe like the the cotton or tobacco processing area or the sugar processing, because like Seth, as you mentioned, like processing sugar, particularly if you're doing it from sugar cane, is incredibly dangerous because it involves you have to have a furnace with really high heat for like extraction and sugar cotton and tobacco are all things that actually you know the picking process is extremely can be extremely dangerous and hazardous to your health so i you know i think having places like that preserved so that because this is a part of american history and i think we need to acknowledge it more than we do yeah i feel like it would be really interesting to visit all of these places and look at all the history I still want to do La Lurie for our Halloween one, just because I think that we could talk about then um, how even after slavery was abolished in a lot of these southern states, especially in, in small areas, people with influence essentially just kept their slaves and kept on going with what they were up to. But uh, there are uh, plantations near New Orleans and uh, all the way to Baton Rouge. And uh, these two were about... I think 40 minutes west of New Orleans. Mm-hmm. So if it's something that interests you, I encourage you to check it out. So thanks for listening. We love all of you. All. We think you're cool. Bringing it back. All right. Bye, everyone. Bye. This has been Speaker for the Living. For extended notes and sources, visit our website at speakerfortheliving.com.